you have your Bibles, open them to Amos chapter 5. And I want to read verse 24, where the prophet Amos says, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, justice, justice. The Floods of Justice podcast looks at the issues of our day from a biblical perspective without the labels. Led by Reverend Dr. Kevin Riggs, affectionately known as Pastor Kevin or Rev Kev. He is the senior pastor of Franklin Community Church and founder of Franklin Community Development in Franklin, Tennessee. He is also a published author, teacher, professor, activist, abolitionist, husband, father, grandfather, scuba diver, and coffee connoisseur, which is why this podcast is brought to you from the Coffee House at 2nd and Bridge in downtown Franklin. Let's begin the conversation. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Floods of Justice podcast, episode number two. We are uh, here at the Coffee House at 2nd and Bridge in Franklin. I'm sitting here with my friend, Pastor Kevin. Good morning. Good morning. (laughs) Got our coffee, we're ready to go. Yeah, I planned ahead this morning, and I, I got my mug. But uh, for those of you listening, it may not be morning, but hopefully you've had your coffee by now. Um, today, we are going to kind of launch off on our first uh, official topic. Um, if you didn't get a chance to listen to the very first episode, uh, we laid out kind of the, the goals and plan for the Floods of Justice podcast, um, why you should listen and our intent on that, in just a quick little nutshell, could you reiterate again on what is the Floods of Justice podcast? Yeah, well, it it's, uh, comes from Amos's words where he says, I want to see a, a mighty flood of justice. And um, the purpose of this website is to try to look at um, issues of the day, topics of the day, and through a uh, Christian worldview, but, uh, but really through uh, lenses of justice as well. And, uh, you know, we are to pray uh, that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And a key component of the kingdom of God is justice and righteousness. And so how can we bring justice and righteousness into our, into our daily lives, into the systems that are there, uh, into our workplaces? And uh, a quick definition of justice is, or is the words of Jesus, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that's a very simple definition, but if we treat others with um, equality and fairness, treat them the way we want to be treated, um, then, um, uh, then justice will flow like that. And so that's, in a nutshell, what we're trying to do. Uh, we want to stay biblical. We want to stay open. Uh, we want to have a conversation. We want to look at different viewpoints. Uh, but ultimately, what does the Bible say? How can we apply that? And how can we, better, how can we be better followers of Jesus? Great. Well, uh, you know, we touched a little bit on the first episode about the church being the conscience of the country or the, being the lack of is kind of what we're looking at yeah. now. I think today's topic uh, shows a, a very hands-on approach on, on what we should be doing in this particular realm here. And what we're talking about this week is a significant week um, called Locked In Solidarity. Um, tell us a little bit about what is Locked in Solidarity. Yeah, well, Locked in Solidarity is a national um, movement uh, to try to bring emphasis. It it takes place every February, usually the second week in February. And it takes place um, throughout the country through some different organizations. It was one of the main organizations is Christian Community Development Association. And uh, it's just to try to emphasize uh, during a week uh, the problem we have in our country with mass incarceration and the importance of the church to step up and to be involved um, in prison ministry and to be involved in trying and, and to be involved in prison reform as well, because we do have a problem in our in our society with um, with an unjust criminal uh, justice system, 
And once you get into that system, it's incredibly hard to get to get out of. And uh, you know, one mistake could uh, have repercussions for the rest of your life um, that in many instances ju just aren't fair. And if we're going to treat people with fairness and equality, then mass incarceration is something we have to look at. Now I hear there's a lot of pushback um, from a certain sector of the, the Christian world um, all about the, the division of church and state, the division of the church's role in oh, what should we do in, in social justice in, in that world. Um, what would be your response to somebody saying, well, it's one thing to go in to be uh, you know, the light in the darkness, to be ministry in prison, but you're talking about prison reform. That's going to involve something outside of the church. Uh, there's, there's protest involved. There's, there's conflict involved. Like, uh, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that. Well, I believe in separation of church and state. And, um, but yet at the same time, I believe that everyone's faith um, influences what they do and how they see things and, and how they do it. And so, you know, if, if I'm in politics, for example, yeah, I have to keep my uh, personal beliefs out of the, um, you know, I, don't, I can't let it interfere with what I'm doing. But at the same time, my personal beliefs are going to influence uh, policies, it, it is going to influence, and that's just not for me as a Christian, that would be a, for a Muslim, a Jewish person, a Buddhist person, if they're uh, involved in politics, that their faith is going to inform uh, how they see things, or at least it should, if it doesn't inform how you see things, then you're, you need to really question if your faith is worth, is worth having, if it's not really changing you. On the other hand, um, you know, one, one pushback I get is that nowhere in scripture do you see Jesus telling people to protest, um, or to, to go and uh, uh, you know, do a sit-in outside of a government office, those kind of things. Well, one of the differences is in the in biblical days, they didn't live in a democracy or a, or a representative um, democracy that like that we have. And so part of our, um, you know, we are called to be good citizens, and even the most conservative Christian to the most liberal Christian would believe that we're called to be good citizens of our country. And, uh, and, so as a, and so in our particular governmental system, the way that we're set up, we have the right to speak into things. We have the right to go and demand change in policy and in government things. And so part of my Christian duty in being a good citizen is if I see an injustice um, and I have the power, the ability to go and to try to influence and to try to change those systems of injustice um, and then my constitution allows me the freedom of speech to go and do that, uh, then it becomes a very easy thing to, to jump and say, well, you know, we, we live in a wonderful country where we can influence our policies. And, and, uh, and so as Christians, we need to do that when we see uh, injustices going on around us, would be my answer. Yeah. Well, admittedly, I, I lived the, uh, the majority of my life in a bit of a bubble. You know, like a lot of people do. And so the discussion of uh, systemic reform and mass incarceration, that life experience wasn't, wasn't what I grew up in. So this, you know, this has been new to me in the last few years. There's probably others out there who are like, uh, I, I really haven't heard any of it. I have heard of people going to the prisons to, to be of ministry to them. But you're talking about systemic reform, that there is, that there is a problem. I didn't know that there was a problem. Can well, here, you, well here's you? an example of, of um, at least a, a minor, just a part of the problem is the bail system that we have in the United States. Bail. Oh, I got you. Bail yeah, system. So the bail system. Right, so, so we're Southern here, so sometimes the words. So <laughs> yeah. bail, I got you. Yeah. Um, and so you are 
already, let's say, coming from a low-income um, perspective uh, or low-income lifestyle, and uh, you have a job, but it's, uh, you know, minimum wage, maybe a little more than minimum wage. You're making maybe you know, 12 bucks an hour. They're working you right at that 32 hours a week, so they don't have to pay you health care, uh, which is a whole other subject. Uh, but you're doing the best that you can to try to provide um, for, your fa- for your family in the circumstances that you have, be it just opportunities you didn't have or, or lack of education or whatever. And you get, you get arrested for a relatively minor um, offense. Uh, it could be, it may not even be a felony. It could just be a misdemeanor. Um, and, so you, and so you go to jail. Once you're arrested and you go to jail, um, you have to go before a judge within so many hours. I think it's 48 hours you have to see a judge. And at that time, uh, the judge can set bail. Uh, well, if, you're, if you live in a county, um, or, or it doesn't really matter that, but if you live in some counties, um, they're known for setting the bail really, really, really high. And so you've got this minor offense. You go to stand before the judge, and the judge gives you a, a $20,000 uh, bail. So if you can come up with 10% of that, so if you can come up with $2,000, then you can get out of jail. But if you can't come up with that $2,000 and you have to sit in jail until your court date, and your court date could be a week, a month, several months down the road, but if you can't come up with your bail, you're there. And so while you're in, in jail because you can't come up with $2,000 because you don't have $2,000, well, then you're going to lose your job. You know? And then from there, things are just going to spiral out of control. Um, you, you may pick up another offense because maybe you owed child support, but now you're in jail and you can't pay your bail and you're going to be in jail for several months. Uh, you know, then you get behind on that. And so then if you get out of jail, uh, you know, you go to the court and they let you out of jail, but then they pick you right back up for violation of your own parole or probation, violating your probation because you hadn't paid your child support. So there you go back in jail. Then they take your driver's license away from you. And the only way you get your driver's license back is if you pay the court fees and the court fines, and so you can't afford that, so you get back out of jail. You don't have a driver's license, but you don't have a job, but you get a job. The only way you can get there is to drive yourself, and eventually you get you run a stop sign or you're involved in a fender bender, and you don't have your driver's license, your own probation, so back you go, and you get into that system, and then it's hard to get out where it all started because it was a minor offense, and, the, and you did not have enough money uh, to bail out and so you ended up just sitting in jail for a few weeks, not doing anything. But during that time, you lost your job and got behind on your bills and got behind on your child support and lost your driver's license and all of that. Whereas if the bail would have been reasonable for the crime that you or for the, what you were charged with, you know, there are some states and counties that have tried to put a either a no bail uh, clause for certain offenses or it can't exceed more than, you know, $100 or $500 or, or whatever. In Nashville, there's a nonprofit uh, that you can petition um, that will pay your bail uh, for you under certain charges so that you don't fall into that trap. So that's just one of the things that the system is there, and, um, and once you get into it, you're stuck. Yeah. Well, there's the bail, the issue with the bail, um, and I know you've got some other statistics to, to share with us this morning as well. Um, have you seen the, the documentary 13th? On, on yes, Netflix? I have. And then that's a whole other rabbit hole. That's a whole other rabbit, and that'll come up with some stats that I have yeah. um, about how uh, the way that our laws are set up. Um, you know, Michelle Alexander wrote a book, The New Jim Crow, uh, that really talks about since, since um, so many minorities, um, so many African Americans are in the system, 
and then once you get in the system, you you know you lose your vi- you lose your, you lose your voting rights. You can't get loans to go to school. Uh, you you can't um, get um, help with housing and all those kind of things. That basically, then you become a second class citizen again, um, and it's and it's used as Jim Crow. And then there are still some states, which is hard to believe, there are some states who still will lease out their prisoners to corporations to do work, uh, which is just slavery, basically. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they're going to pay the inmate, uh, you know, 50 cents an hour or $2 an hour maybe, uh, but then the prison is, is getting, you know, $20, $30, $40 an hour for that uh, for that labor. And that still happens. And um, it's just, that's, that's a horrible system. And basically... Um, and there's a case to be made that the prison system, the way that it's structured, simply just replaced slavery. Yes. Yeah. Well, and that's a big point of yeah. the documentary. Yeah. yeah. So for those that uh, maybe aren't familiar with the prison system at all, um, uh, can you kind of give us a little bit of education on uh, there's, there's actually a privatized prison system, uh, for-profit prison system that exists Outside of just the what we think of as the the governmental penal system, yeah, the private prisons are are um, a horrible idea. I think I think they're immoral um, because basically you're making money by keeping people uh, in cages, and um, and so you know in in our community uh, we have a private prison system called Core Civic, which is one of the larger ones in the entire country, and uh, you can you can buy their stock on Wall Street. And so if I invest, if I invest in a private prison system um, or if I invest in Core Civic or some of the other groups out there, then the only way I'm going to get a return on my investment is if that, if, is if that prison makes a profit. And the only way they make a profit um, is if they, if they keep their beds a certain percentage full, which is really, really high, but then also cut back as much um, as as uh, as possible without violating the quote the civil rights of the uh, uh, of the inmate and so I'm going to look for um, you know how can I make cuts in what I pay my guards how can I make cuts in um, in any type of counseling or treatment or when it comes to uh, you know electricity when it comes to food when it comes to all these things how can I cut so that I can make a profit um, and then what will happen is you know the the cities and counties will contract out with the pris- with the private prisons, and so, you know, and so I'm going to as a county we can't house all our prisoners, so I'm going to I want to contract out with the private prison, and and when I do that, I'm going to guarantee the private prison um, that the, there will be so many beds every night in the prison that are full, and whether or not those beds are full or not, um, the county is going to pay that amount. Uh, and so then the county is going to pay money or the taxpayers paying money for beds that aren't full. Well, nobody likes that. So now you want to go out and find more people to arrest and keep in jail longer uh, for that. And then the private prisons are now starting to privatize the probation aspect of it or the halfway houses. And they're, and they're making money on this. And the way you keep making money is to keep people in uh, in that system. And so it becomes, a, um, you know, there's studies that show that the private prisons are are among the worst managed prisons um, than, uh, than the public prison. Where in the public prison, there's an incentive to um, get people out. Um, you know, and there, there's, I, I'm familiar with one sheriff who brags about how many empty beds uh, he has uh, compared to how many empty beds the first night. Well, you can do that in a public prison. You can't do that with a private prison. Then I also know sheriffs who brag about how many beds they have full every night. 
And so, it appro- and so, it, and so your whole approach to prison reform, um, if, if part of that is you want to make a profit, then prison reform is going to look a whole lot different in your mind uh, than a person who, uh, you know, we're not in this for profit. We, we want to rehabilitate. We want to restore people. Um, and so it just, again, that's just another aspect of this system that just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And our state is, is arguing about whether to defund basically private prisons. And, um, and the politicians are trying to work that out. Can, can we defund our private prisons and, and go back to all public prisons? It sounds like a, a part of the problem is, is how we view those individuals. Is, are, are they just numbers? Are they bodies in a bed? Uh, as, as a believer, as a Christian, how should we be viewing a, a, the prisoner? Yeah, well, they're, they're human beings. Um, and let me just give you a few, a few verses because the Bible says a lot about prisoners. And so, for example, Psalm 69, 33 says, The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. And so, you know, the Bible talks about this. Psalm 79, 11 says, Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. And so not just prisoners, but um, death row inmates. The Bible saying you got to look out for this. you got to care for that. And then one of my favorite verses, Hebrews 13, 3 says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And that's where the whole idea of locked in solidarity comes with. You live in solidarity with these prisoners because the Bible says you should live as if you're in prison with them um, and those who are mistreated since they are uh, in the body. But, but one way, too, and I've, I've, talked in, um, I've talked to prisoners about this when I've gone into prisons to speak uh, here locally and in Honduras and other places, um, is that if you look at the life of Jesus, um, when Jesus entered into his ministry, when he goes to his hometown synagogue in Luke chapter 4 and um, basically announces that he is the Messiah, he reads from the prophet Isaiah, which um, the, that particular passage of scripture was basically the job description of the Messiah, and a part of it is, you know, God has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and to give freedom to the prisoner. And so Jesus says that he came for the prisoner. Now, we know that Jesus died for everyone, that he came for everyone, but nowhere in Scripture does it say he came for the rich or he came for the Republican or he came for the Democrat um, or that he came for the middle class even. But it does say he came for the prisoner. And then, of course, he had a, a cousin, John the Baptist, who was in prison and ended up being executed uh, and so, you know, he, he, had, he had that relationship with family members who were in the system. Uh, halfway through Jesus' ministry, so to speak, he gives his, uh, what I think is the most important parable, the parable of the sheep and the goats. And, uh, and basically, that's the only time Jesus makes a comparison and says, here's who's in, here's who's out. Um, and uh, those who are in and those who are out, one of the things he said is, you visited the prisoner. And when you visited the prisoner, you visited me. And so I tell people I go to prison because that's where Jesus is, and he wants me to come visit him. Um, And so at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus mentions um, that he came to set the prisoner free. Uh, His his cousin was in prison. And then he gives this parable that says you are to go visit the prisoner, and as you visit the prisoner, you visit me. And then Jesus himself is arrested, so he becomes an inmate. Okay, Um, And not only is he arrested, he's sentenced to execution by the state. And then he's, he's being executed on the cross, and he's hung between two other prisoners. And he has a conversation with those two prisoners. And to the one prisoner, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. And then those were the, some of the last words he spoke before he died. And so from the beginning to the middle to the end of Jesus' ministry, 
prisons and prisoners were a focal point of what he was doing. Um, and so he saw them as, this is who I came for, this is who I died for. And so if we're going to follow Jesus, that means that we're going to follow Jesus into the prisons. Um, because that's where Jesus is, and he's made it very, very clear uh, that we are to be involved uh, in there, and we're to be, and we're to be with them. And then here's, here's a stat that I, um, that I, I like to give out. <clears throat> um, approximately 95% of the people who are incarcerated right now, 95% of them will, be, will one day walk out the prison doors and be back on the streets again. So they're going to be your neighbors. They're going to be, you know, you're going to live with them. 95% are going to leave. And so it's incredibly important to me then as a Christian and as just a human being that I make sure that the people in prison are, are being reformed. They're getting what they need. They're, they're getting what they can do so that when they get out, they can be productive members of society because 95% of them are going to walk out one day. And if you treat them like animals while they're in prison, then you can't really expect them to act any differently when they get out. And so the recidivism rate gets really, really high. And so there's a, there's a spiritual component to this, but there's also a social and economic component. That if we go into the prisons and we do ministry in the prisons so that when people get out, they can become um, you know, contributing members of society, then it's for everyone's benefit. But if we just lock them up and throw away the key, uh, then the, it, things will just get worse. Can you, uh, you, you know, I had the, the privilege of, of going in with you a few years ago under the Jobs of Life, Jobs for Life program. Um, I don't have anywhere near the experience that, that you've had over the years. Can you, you know, describe uh, what it's, maybe what it's been like for you or what you've seen in, in, in growth for individuals who had not been a part of prison ministry, who came in maybe with one notion of, uh, these are my fears, concerns, or attitude, and within you know a certain amount of time, that evolves and, and changes for for those of the, us that have not done. Yeah, well, it's like anything else. If 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 you live in proximity to people who are going through struggles, then you see them as human beings and not as people who are going through struggles. Um, and uh, and you know, I tell people, if you look into the eyes of people, regardless of what state of life they're in, if you look into their eyes, you see the image of God, and the image of God is in all of us. And so, most of the time, when people go into a jail or into a prison, and there is a difference between the two. But when they go in, when they go behind bars and they've never been, they're, they're nervous, they're apprehensive, and when they hear the clanking of, the, of the, the bars or the locks, you know, every door is locked, so you just you can't go and open any door. You have to wait for somebody to see you on camera and hit a button, and you hear the noise, and you open the door, and you walk on through. But then when you sit down and you realize that these people are people, um, and you realize that they're, they're your um, your sons and daughters, um, they're, your, they're your aunts and uncle. Um, you know, a lot of times you'll meet somebody who reminds you of somebody you know, and now you're sitting down with these people and you're laughing with them and you're praying with them and you're talking about, uh, you're talking about God or you're just talking about life. Uh, then when you leave, um, it, it changes you because now they're, they're not criminals, it's Bobby. You know, they're not bad people, that's Johnny or that's Susan, and, and, um, and I didn't know it, but I went to high school with them, or I went to high school with their brother, you know, and, and you find that connection, uh, and then you realize that, you know, I could have done, I, I've done stuff that could have landed me there uh, just as easy as they did, and so they're not, they're not animals, they're not monsters, uh, and it doesn't matter what they've done, and, and you know, I've, I've talked 
to prisoners everywhere from just misdemeanors to murders, you know, but it doesn't matter what they've done. They're, they're human beings, and uh, God, God is there, and he still loves them, and there's hope, and there's redemption, and, and all of that. And when you see that, then it, it just can't help uh, but change, change who you are, and you realize um, that uh, uh, the only difference between you and that person is they got caught, you know, um, and you were fortunate enough by the grace of God to avoid some of the traps and some of the things that they, uh, that they fell into. And then you also start to see, well, you know, this, this person, um, they weren't in jail very long, or I know somebody else who did the same thing this person did, and they just, they didn't go to jail. And then you realize that, well, they got a really, really good lawyer because they could afford a lawyer, and this person got a public defender. And, and so now you see where economics comes into play, where this person um, does the exact same thing as somebody else, uh, but they're in jail and the other person not, then it comes down to what kind of defense they put up and what kind of plea they made and, and how much, you know, what a good lawyer they could afford. Uh, and then you start to really see uh, the injustice that's going on. Well, I, th- I, think, I think we've got a good basic understanding of, uh, you know, our, uh, our mass incarceration system and issues surrounding that. Um, can we jump back just to, just to some kind of statistics that give us a, a really bird's eye view of, of the monster that we're fighting here? Yeah, and, and you can get these statistics statistics anywhere. Okay, um, you know you can research. Um, and you can go to FBI web. You know the FBI can give all this. I mean, there's plenty of places. I pulled these down simply from the NCAA, NAACP because it was just kind of short and quick bullet points from that. And so this is. Uh, from the NAACP, their criminal justice fact sheet, and here's what they say. Between 1980 and 2015, the number of people incarcerated in America increased from roughly 500,000 in 1980 to over 2.2 million in 2015. Now, a lot of that is because of the, quote, war on drugs, where we started incarcerating people uh, for drug use, and you got to be tough on crime. And, And then... You know, there, there's been a move in Congress, I can't remember where it is, but cocaine, for example, crack cocaine and then powder cocaine. Crack cocaine is usually associated with poor inner city. Powder cocaine is associated with the rich and wealthy. Well, you, at, at one time, they made some changes, but at one time you had to have like 100% more powder cocaine to get the exact same sentence of, you know, one ounce of crack cocaine. And so, and if you're crack cocaine, you're a crack addict. If it's powder cocaine, you have a problem, you need to go to rehab. You know, so you didn't really go to prison for powder cocaine. You went to prison for crack cocaine. So the war on drugs uh, really, and this is Michelle Alexander's, one of her main points in the, her book, The New Jim Crow, uh, the war on drugs really became a new Jim Crow where it put people behind bars um, for, for reasons that they should not have been um, uh, put in behind bars. And then you had minimum sentences that came as a result of that, and, it just, and now you want to legalize uh, marijuana, which put millions of people in the system but now we figured out a way to make money from it and so let's open up the markets and and, uh, and so it becomes incredible so from from 1980 to 2015 you go from a half a million people incarcerated to over two million incarcerated uh, today today the united states makes up five percent of the world's population but has 21 percent of the world's prisoners so we have more people behind bars than any other country um, and then, because this is from the NAACP, then you start to see the racial disparities by these stats. In 2014, African Americans um, made up 2.3 million, or 34 percent of the total 6.8 million 
um, correctional population. In other words, um, the African-American population in the United States is roughly 16%, but the prison population is 34%. Um, and so, you know, double that. And so, and so there, there's a problem. It's not that one group is committing more crimes than another. It's, uh, it's the sentencing that comes down. Who gets arrested? Who doesn't? Where are the police? Uh, and, and, and all of that. Uh, African-Americans are incarcerated at more than five times the rate of whites. Uh, the imprisonment rate for African-American women is twice that of white women. Uh, nationwide, African-American children represent 32% of children who are arrested, 42% of children who are detained, and 52% of children uh, whose cases are judicially waived to criminal court, African-Americans. Though African-American and Hispanics make up approximately 32% of the U.S. population, they comprise 56% of all incarcerated people in 2015. And so, you know, basically the, the two biggest minority groups make up over half of, of, uh, of the prison population. If African Americans and Hispanics were incarcerated at the same rate as whites, prisons and jail populations would decline by 40%. Um, and uh, again, in my own local prison here, the local jail here, I tell people if, if they let... The people out of jail who are there for simple possession um, and for not paying their child support, um, you know, half the people in, in the local jail would be would be out. Um, and so we and so we've got this problem where we just keep putting people uh, in bars and for drugs. And you cannot arrest the drug problem. You know, there, there's other things you need to do in order to um, uh, you, you you can't criminalize it and solve it. Um, that just that just makes it that just makes it worse. And so, again, part of this week of solidarity, or, or um, you know, is to emphasize mass incarceration and the importance of the church uh, to be inside the prisons, um, taking care of people, trying to meet the needs, so that when so that then we when they get out, they can be uh, um, productive members of society. Well, you mentioned there that, uh, that we can't hope to solve a problem by criminalizing that, uh, which leads us into our next section, which will be restorative justice. Uh, let's take a break right now. When we come back, let's talk about the concept of restorative justice. The Floods of Justice podcast is brought to you by the Coffee House at Second and Bridge. Since 1904, they have stood at the corner of Second and Bridge Street in the heart of downtown Franklin. Their house-made menu items are crafted with care and love. Baked goods are made from scratch each morning, and specialty coffee is always ground and brewed fresh. So come on down, wander the rooms, join us at the coffee bar, and find a space to enjoy the food, the drink, and maybe even a recording of the Floods of Justice podcast. Welcome back to the Floods of Justice podcast. I'm here with Pastor Kevin, and we have been talking about locked-in solidarity, mass incarceration, and uh, prison ministries, uh, we were leading into something called restorative justice, which may be a new term. If you missed the first episode, uh, Pastor Kevin talked about the, just the, the, his definition, our operating definition of justice. What is justice? What is biblical justice? justice? What is godly justice? Um, now we're getting even more specific with something uh, you're calling restorative justice. Can you tell us a bit about that concept? Yeah, well, it's not me. I mean, restorative justice is you actually a real... You didn't invent this? <laughs> no. Oh. It's, act, it's actually a real term. But uh, to me, if I can back up again and try to put this into um, some type of biblical theological context, um, you know, I believe that God's primary characteristic is that he is holy. He's a holy God. And so his love is a holy love. His, his, um, his discipline is a holy discipline. His, 
his his care for us is a holy a holy care holiness undergirds everything um, that God is and so when it comes to justice you have to say that his justice is a holy justice and and so part of being a holy God means that you want a just society or you want a just world and then God is holy and then he tells us in both the Old Testament and the New Testament be holy as I am holy so now as his followers we are to be holy you know that's a that's an incredible concept because I know that in this life I'm never going to be holy the way that we think of holiness but again if you think of this holiness as being um, justice you know treating people with equality and fairness and and that's the you know there's a personal holiness that I have to that I have to live by which may affect some things I do in my personal life or I don't do but then there's a public holiness uh, which is what justice is you know I've said this before that holiness is what the justice of God looks like in pub in public and so how do we go about um, doing this and so in our, in our system, in the United States, unfortunately, um, the type of justice that we usually look to when it comes to the courts of law is punitive justice. In other words, it's just about punishment. Don't do the crime if you can't do the time. Um, and if it's a violent crime, then we, we fall back on that eye for an eye, you know, tooth for a tooth. So if you killed somebody, you need to be killed. Now, it's interesting that we don't really apply that to other things. If you rape somebody, the punishment is not that you get raped. But if you kill somebody, then the punishment is, is to get killed. And so justice becomes punitive. This is what you deserve for what you did. And God's justice is not like that. Now, there's a punitive aspect to God's justice that he does discipline us, and there's consequences for our actions. Um, um, but primarily, God, God is a restoring God. He's a reconciling God. The whole reason he sent Christ here so that we did not have to get what we deserve. You know, he sent Jesus so that we could be restored to him. He, and the Bible says that he wants to reconcile the entire world to himself. And so we have to take that as followers of Christ. If we're going to be holy, then that's going to affect the way that we look at criminal justice. And it has to be restorative so that we don't just put people in cages and punish them because of something they did. Uh, but the whole goal of that punitive aspect of removing somebody from society for a period of time that's punitive but the goal of that is to restore is to restore them to society but also to restore the person who's been harmed by what they have done and so um, that's the idea of restorative justice here's here's how one person has defined it restorative justice views crime as more than breaking the law it also causes harm to people relationships and the community so a just response must address those harms as well as the wrongdoing um, and so basically there's three big ideas in restorative justice. One is repair. Uh, crime causes harm and justice, um, and that requires repairing that harm. Encounter, the best way to determine how to do that is to have the parties decide together what is appropriate. And then transformation, how do we change um, the person who has done this? What caused them to, uh, to, to be in a situation where they felt like they had to do that? Now that doesn't remove personal responsibility but what are some things, um, you know, about that person's past, uh, things they've gone through. And so restorative justice looks at, okay, how, do, how does a person pay for what they've done? That's the punitive aspect of it. But also, how does the person go about and how does society go on about restoring the harm that person has done to the, to the victim? So victim, victim rights, vic that's important. But then how do we restore this person to society, back to society? Because, again... 95% of the people in jail are going to be released one day. And, um, and unfortunately, oftentimes, when it's just punitive, 
um, what you get when somebody gets out of jail is just a more a more intelligent criminal. You know, they just they they learn what not to do so they don't get caught again. Instead of look, you don't have to live this way. Here's we're going to help you. We're going to restore you, and we're going and we're going we're going to um, also help the victim. And part of that help with the victim may be getting the um, some type of restoration between the criminal and the victim. Now that's not always possible, uh, especially face to face encounters. But when that happens, um, that's that's a positive thing. I mean, there's a whole movement within um, reform, reform systems to um, if a person who has committed a crime wants to reach out and apologize or to talk with the person they offended and the person who was offended would like for that to happen, how do you make that happen so that they can sit down and uh, talk and, uh, and find some type of reconciliation and forgiveness? And even after the forgiveness, the person may still need to, to serve their jail sentence, but now both people can go on because victims, um, if, if a victim holds on to that um, anger too long, then it starts to affect them. And so when there's, where there's forgiveness, there's freedom and there's restoration um, and there's still a price that needs to be paid, uh, but yet if the goal is restoration, then um, when, that, when, a, when a prisoner is released, the recidivism rate will not be nearly as high as when the goal is just simply punitive. You know, you've got to go away. Uh, you know, I've heard on the streets people who are in and out, who are in and out of jail, a friend gets arrested, and they just say, you just need to go sit down. And what they're saying is, we don't really want any restoration to take place. Just go do your time, sit down, come back out, and that's just the wrong approach from, the, from both the victim side and the, and the perpetrator side. That's just the wrong approach. A more biblical approach was how can we reconcile? How can we be instruments of reconciliation and restorative justice? Well, I, I think we've got a good understanding there of uh, the concept of restorative justice and, and the benefits and purpose of restorative justice can you touch on some points of what is the practical application of that? You know, it's like, it's a great pipe dream of, oh, we want to restore somebody, but how do you actually go about restoring somebody? Well, yeah, years ago in, in, our, in my own local community, this is, this is years ago, and I, and I just now thought of this, so I may not get the stories factually correct, but this, but this is what happened. There was a, a young man, uh, if I remember right, he was a young adult, 18 to 25, somewhere around there. For whatever reason, he, he got drunk one night and he went to an African-American person's house and he uh, burnt a cross in the front yard. Okay, now this is the late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, and, of course, he was arrested for that. But then an uh, African-American pastor reached out to him, you know, went to court with him and told the judge, do not punish this person for this. Um, I'm willing to take him on. I'm willing, to, I'm willing to be his mentor. Okay. And so the judge released this guy with some stipulations um, into the care of this African-American pastor. So you had a, a white supremacist, basically. Now he, he's going to, um, he had to, you know, do so many hours of community service, but the African-American pastor was the uh, person who was overseeing that community service. And, um, and so the transformation then that took place uh, in this young person's life uh, w- was just unreal. All of a sudden, he realized the harm that he had done, not just to society or to the person whose yard he vandalized, but the harm that he had done to himself by holding these views. 
And so there was, there was this transformation that took place that would have never taken place if you'd have just sent him to jail. And for that, you know, he may have only been in jail for a month or so. But, but coming out of jail, he, he would have, that would have been a felony. So coming out of jail, he wouldn't have had uh, opportunities to go to school and all that um, because once you get a felony, you can't, there's a lot of things like that that aren't open to you anymore. But he completed his time and his relationship with the pastor, so then his record was expunged which means as if it never happened, right? And now the person can move on. So that's a minor thing. On a, on a major type scale, um, um, there was a, a friend of mine who was executed back in May who, um, had, who had killed his wife and, and admitted that he did it. And uh, at the time, he had a stepdaughter that was six, seven years old, something like that. And, um, and so um, the guy goes to death row, and he's on death row for... 30 years and then recently executed for most of her life the stepdaughter held this anger and this um, uh, justifiably so you know and this bitterness because her mom was not there for all the key events in her life then as an adult she decided to reach out to her stepdad uh, and wanted to set up a meeting to basically let him have it you know to basically get all this hatred out of her and spew it onto onto him and again from a punitive perspective we're like she has every right to do that you know um and so she and so a meeting was set up and she went and she had her notes prepared and she just you know told this guy everything that she thought about him and how he was a monster and all those kind of things and he just sat and listened to it and cried didn't respond back just let her say whatever she say well near the end of that something happened to the stepdaughter who is now I think in her 30s when she did this and her heart was broken um, and she will tell you that you know Christ's love filled her um, and she forgave him you know forgave her stepfather for doing that and then uh, went about building a relationship with him and so would write him letters and would come visit him and and uh, he showed me one of the letters that he wrote her and it was just a wonderful letter of of forgiveness and reconciliation and so he had this degree of healing that was taking place she had this degree of healing that was taking place and then she became an advocate um, trying to uh, convince the state to to give him clemency in other words to take the death sentence off and just let him spend the rest of his life in prison and her argument was I've already lost my mom once Um, he is a connection to my mom and, and she would and he would tell her all kinds of stories about her mom and so basically she said, if you execute him, it's like losing my mom all over again. You know, now they didn't listen to that argument and he was executed, but, but this restorative justice took place where this person, uh, the offender and the pe- person who was offended start to reconcile and both of them become um, at least closer to healing, especially the victim. The vic- you know, there's, there's a better chance of her healing and being able to get on with her life than if she would have held that bitterness um, for the rest of her life. And so restorative justice just seeks to how can we, how can we repair the harm that has been done um, to both the victim uh, as well as the offender and, and where can reconciliation take place. Um, and in some places it may not be. I can, another story of, of again, if I can use death row as an example, uh, there are guys on death row who have tried um, to reach out and want to reconcile with the victim's families. Uh, and, but then the state steps in and says, no, you can't do that. And so then the state stops that. 
And uh, if the victim's family doesn't want to meet, doesn't want to, the victim's family has every right of that. But what would be the harm of, of, um, of contacting and say, hey, if you want to, here's this person, you know, they, they've, um, they're remorseful, uh, they want to tell you uh, that they're sorry, um, if you're willing to meet with them, or are you willing for them to write you a letter, or is there any way, you know, that we can uh, uh, move to restore? Because, it would, again, it would be healing to me. It would be healing on the victim side uh, to be able to, to forgive that. And so, um, you know, you see some of this in our system where, you know, they try to, you know, if you steal something, you got to pay it back. But, but ultimately in our system, it just becomes punitive. It's about locking people away, serve your time, don't complain, and after you served your time, get on about your life, but then that work out that way because of probation and you know all those all those kind of things that that keep a person in the system that they're in. Whereas restorative justice, I think, um, would have a better chance of a reducing recidivism than a, um, than just sending somebody away, hoping they get some programs while they're locked up, and then when they get out, you know, get back a. Uh, get back on their feet, but restorative justice is a better way, I think, and it's closer to the idea of what God did because all of us deserve death, right? Um, And the Bible says that while we hated God, that's when God loved us enough and sent his son to die for us, and the whole reason of that was to restore us to himself and to reconcile us back to himself. And so how can we model that on a practical basis with with people who have committed crimes? Um, And... uh, and show more of the character of God in, in our lives and in the life of society. Well, here's, here's something I want to hear your opinion on, uh, and it's a, it's a phrase, it's an attitude that, for the record, doesn't sit well with me, or, or at least the application of it often doesn't sit well with me, but the phrase, hate the sin, love the sinner. So is that something that is, is useful in this reconciliation, restoration process, um, or is it something that actually gets in the way? Yeah, I think it's one of those phrases that it may have started out good, but then it becomes overused, and it, it, maybe it should be something like um, the love of the sinner. Because you love the sinner so much, it should break your heart that they've done what they've done. Um, and, so you're, and so you're moved with compassion instead of um, uh, judgment. I mean, hate the sin, love the sinner, uh, because, well, what happens then, unfortunately, and again, we're going to talk about the death penalty maybe next time, but if I can use this example, this, this aggravates the daylights out of me. Um, when I talk to people um, and, they talk, and they ask me, and this usually comes from pastors um, <clears throat> and conservative pastors, and they want to know who on, who on death row is saved and who isn't. And it's almost like if I tell them, I know they may not be thinking this, but this is the way I read it. It's almost like if I tell them, well, this person is saved, then the attitude becomes, well, we hate the sin, we love the sinner, so we're still going to execute him because we know he's going to heaven, so that's really good. You know, and so the, the hate the sin means you're still hard on the, on, on the person who committed the sin, even though you say you love the sinner. Does that make any sense? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of convoluted. I know, and I know they probably don't mean that, but that's kind of the way it comes across, um, you know, is that, okay, we've got to make sure this person, is, this person is right with God before we kill them. And somehow or another, that's hating the sin and loving the sinner. Yeah. And, and that's, where it gets, that's where it gets convoluted. I mean, because we're all sinners, and so it should be, you know, we love the sin. We love the sinner, um, and our hearts are broken. We see them as sheep without a shepherd. You know, we see them with compassion and sheep without a shepherd, which is the way Jesus sees us. And so I don't want to remove personal responsibility away 
taking that away from anyone. Uh, but I also want to hear their stories. Um, and then once you hear their stories, you can see um, how um, you know, they had choice, but yet it's not surprising they ended up doing what they did because of the, the abuse that they suffered or the, uh, the trauma that they went through um, or, or um, you know, the, just the side of town that they um, grew up in. Here, here's, here's a story um, of someone I know. Um, maybe this fits here, maybe it doesn't. If it doesn't, you can cut it out. But here's a story of somebody I know, um, a guy who was doing really, really well, graduated from high school, had a job working with young people, and was doing really, really well. Uh, one morning, he went out to, to leave for work, and the SWAT team was there, and they threw him on the ground, and they arrested him. Um, and he kept saying, I don't know what you're doing. I haven't done anything. And, and the news picked it up, so he was on the news. They showed his picture on the news. He was in jail for a little while because he couldn't make bail right away. Um, and then he got out of jail. When he got out of jail, he lost his job because you know, he was working with young people, and then the young people's parents saw him, his face on the news. And uh, so he lost his job, um, and he kept telling the judge they've arrested the wrong person, and ultimately what happened is they let him go, and the, and the person the SWAT team was after lived next door. So it was literally they got the wrong person, you know. And as a result of that, he lost his job, uh, got behind on his bills. He couldn't get another job in the community because everybody saw his face on the news. And once you're facing, you know, if you're arrested, you're guilty, right? Um, and so a friend of his came up to him and said, look, I know you're behind on your bills if you just – take these drugs and sell them, it'll help you out, okay? So he made the choice. That's personal responsibility. He made the choice to start selling drugs, and he was really good at it, you know, because he, he was a likable person, great personality, good salesman. So he became a somewhat successful drug dealer. He eventually got arrested, spent some time in the federal penitentiary, uh, which means he was, he was more than just a street dealer, right? So he spent some time in federal penitentiary, um, and now he's out. He's doing really, really well, but he's, but he's always struggled. And that entire struggle in his life goes back to the wrong house. And, it start, and he got into the system. And, and it's been a fight to try to get back out of the system, you know, because he still has that. And to this day, if he applied for a certain job and they do a background check, that's what this is going to come up. And he can't get that particular charge expunged. Um, after so many years because of the level that it was. Um, and so, you know, there's, he's doing really, really well. He's an entrepreneur, but there's always going to kind of be a ceiling over him um, that uh, you and I don't have. And it goes back now. He made, he made the choice, but he was put in a situation where if that never would have happened, he wouldn't have been in a position to make that choice that he made. And he made that choice just to try to help provide for his family. And because he he says he he's never done drugs, but he started selling to help um, support his family because he lost his job from a mistaken identity. Well, I think we need to wrap things up for this episode. Uh, but to all the listeners out there, if you have any personal experience um, or situations that you that you know of where you saw restorative justice effectively executed, or where you saw it not effectively not used at all we would love to hear your stories um, so reach out to us online at the website uh, floodsofjustice.com uh, you can also message pastor kevin on twitter at uh, rigs underscore kevin so r-i-g-g-s underscore k-e-v-i-n 
Uh, we would love to hear some feedback on the episode. Uh, let's go into our walk the talk here. I know you had a few points uh, that people can run with over the next week. Tell us about that. Yeah, again, just this is basically we're at, at the walk the talk. Most of this is just resources right now. As we go, there may be more things that we can add. But uh, I mentioned these websites last week. If you just want to uh, look at some websites where you can find some information about justice, uh, you can go to floodsofjustice.wordpress.com right now. We're having a problem with that website, but if you go to floodsofjustice.wordpress.com and uh, you can scroll or, or do a search of justice uh, or social justice and those kind of things and articles will come up. Uh, EJUSA, which is Equal Justice, uh, EJUSA.org, they have a whole section on justice and restorative justice. Um, they call it healing justice. They don't call it restorative justice, but they do, they've written a lot on healing justice. That's very, very good. Um, and redletterchristians.org um, has some articles on justice and restorative justice as well as ccda.org, which is where you can find a lot of information about the Locked in Solidarity. Uh, but then a book I thought, and this is a very little book, and this book was recommended to me by somebody in prison and because uh, they had read it in a conflict management class in prison. And so I thought I'd get that book. So it's a real short book, real easy to read, and it's called The Little Book of Restorative Justice by uh, Howard Zare, Z-E-H-R, and it wouldn't take you long to read through that book, and it's got some good information. But then, if, depending on when you get this podcast, um, if you're in the Nashville area uh, on uh, Sunday, March the 16th, at, uh, I'm sorry, Sunday, February 16th, at 2 p.m., uh, we are gathering um, in front of um, Riverbend Maximum Security Institution at the prison where the death row inmates are held and uh, we're going to do a march we call this a march for mercy and we do this on the weekend before every execution and we will march uh, approximately nine miles from the prison to the state capitol uh, asking Governor Lee uh, to go to death row and pray uh, with the inmates and uh, so that's Sunday if you're around and you can make it at that time if you get this podcast in time um, if not if, unless things change there'll be another execution in June so so now go ahead and uh, leave your Sundays in June free because uh, there will be a march at some point in June as well. Uh, but if you're around, um, um, we'd love to see you out there for that March for Mercy. And uh, if you want more information about that, just contact me at Twitter or my email if you'd like, kevin at franklincommunitychurch.org. Great. Well, that brings us to an end on episode two. Going into episode three, what do we have to look forward to? Well, um, I would like to, if we, if we can get another episode in before February the 20th, which is when the state has, state of Tennessee is executing, has scheduled an execution, uh, then uh, I want to really just talk about the death penalty okay. and why I think that uh, we, justice requires that we get rid of the death penalty. Great. Well, thank you for joining us, listeners. Uh, be sure to subscribe, tell your friends, uh, reach out, out to us and be a part of this discussion. Uh, and see you on the next episode. Thanks. The Floods of Justice podcast looks at the issues of our day from a biblical perspective without the labels. Join the conversation online at floodsofjustice.com or find the Reverend Dr. Kevin Riggs on Twitter at Riggs underscore Kevin.